I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Girl, real talk. This whole it's new year, time to reinvent myself trash is not the vibe for 2024. You can find someone who loves you for you as you are. You don't need to read a stack of self-help books, only eat sad salads, or like start meditating at 5 a.m. to be ready for dating. So yeah, my advice is to download Bumble and find someone who embraces you the way you are right now. Let me know how it goes. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Big box retailers led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a bill in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. Senate Bill 1838 would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, visit handsoffmyrewards.com and tell them to oppose credit card routing legislation paid for by the Electronic Payments Coalition. I'm suspecting the key is um, treating your own writing and your own life like a garden and understanding that it's going to be there tomorrow and that you can invest in it. And that means that, you know, if you if you start planting tomorrow, um, you know, you can pick up where you left off and we're going to be there every day and no one's going to come run roughshod over it and and it's going to be okay. And, you know, in the, when it's time for harvest, it's going to be okay. And you notice it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. How do we write when it's going to be okay? I'm Jordan Kistner, author of the essay collection, Thin Places. And this is Thresholds, a weekly series of conversations with writers and artists about moments of epiphany or transformation that changed their lives and their work. A moment that they stepped across, like a threshold, into something new. And the way that experience changed everything they wrote afterward. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Big box retailers, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a bill in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. Senate Bill 1838 would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, visit handsoffmyrewards.com and tell them to oppose credit card routing legislation paid for by the Electronic Payments Coalition. How do I even describe Rika Aoki's new book, her novel, Light from Uncommon Stars? It is a 
delicious chaos of different subjects. It's full of aliens and donuts and queer love and exquisite violin playing. It centers Katrina, a young transgender runaway who plays violin and who crosses paths with a woman named Shizuka, a famous violin teacher who has made a deal with the devil. To escape damnation, she has to have seven other violin prodigies trade their souls for success. Katrina will be her last one. Shizuka is also involved with a woman named Lan, who's a retired starship captain and an interstellar refugee who's turning her donut shop into an entry point for other intergalactic visitors. All this takes place in the San Gabriel Valley in Los Angeles. It's a breakout hit for Rika, who's primarily been known as an essayist and a poet until this novel. And I got to talk to her about her decision to put all of herself on the page for this book even the parts of herself that she thought weren't going to be met with kindness from readers. The big leap she took to write Light from Uncommon Stars and all of the moments of leaping before that. She also offered me a new way of thinking about the concept of thresholds, which is something I've been thinking about ever since. In the 90s, ads for phone sex lines could be seen everywhere, flickering on late-night cable channels and printed on the back of magazines. Phone sex operators worked around the clock to fulfill fantasies. It all started with an idea from a guy named Mike Pardes, CEO and founder of American Telnet. But it was the women behind the phones who created the close-knit yet dysfunctional family that turned American Telnet into a multi-billion dollar company and revolutionized the sex industry. Wondery and Topic Studios' new podcast, Operator, is the untold story of Telnet, which dominated the phone sex industry until the money blinded them and it all came crashing down. I actually heard about this show a couple years ago when it was in development, and I am so excited to finally be getting to listen to it now. Follow Operator on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or you can listen early and ad-free by subscribing to Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts or the Wondery app. I think about. you know, just thinking about salmon, you know, going up to one stream of the next and to the next, um, all the way from choosing to become a writer to choosing to write this book to, you know, and, and all of these are, are all thresholds. Um, what I would consider a threshold are those times where I am definitely fighting upstream and I feel that it would be so easy to turn around and not to do the thing that is in my heart because every other part of me is saying, you know, logically you should rest. Your body is saying physically you're tired and, you know, you're even some of your ancestors are saying, come back to where it's safe. But because you're either inspired or foolish, you jump. And then when you jump, you find yourself in another place of calm and you realize, wow, okay, I'm here. That's where I am right now, by the way, with this book. Uh, there was a lot of doubt and there were so many, I had so many wonderful excuses not to write this book or to write this book in a different way or to go with a small press, to not send letters to agents, to not do so many things. But at each of those little thresholds, I uh, I was either foolish or brave. And 
I got here. And now that I'm here with this book and I've seen it on the Los Angeles Times bestseller list and I have uh, met so many beautiful, gentle, generous other writers and people who are enjoying my work, it's thresholds are really amazing when you look back at them and you say, wow, that really was something. I don't quite know how I got here. But gosh, the view is really, really nice. I'm feeling very peaceful right now, Jordan. And I think that um, it's it's been this pattern in my life from everything from this book, you know, going back to uh, coming out as transgender to even before that, uh, being uh, Asian and deciding that I wanted to be a writer. At all of these stages, there were thresholds. There were places where there were so many valid reasons to do the right thing. But your heart is telling you, no, do, do the thing that you were put on this world to do. That's such a beautiful way of thinking about this concept of it being like a, a moment of embattlement or of being torn where you could sort of follow your follow your gut or do the thing that you think you're supposed to do. What, how did that look for you when you were working on, on this last book? Mm. Well, a couple things that had happened with this book originally, um, when I was first writing this book, when this book was first uh, in, in a spiral notebook, I was going through some rough personal times. I had a, a breakup and all, you know, I lost a class and, and my, even towards the end, my car was stolen. And there were oh. so many, oh yeah, I lost it. And for the first time in my life, I, uh, and I know many people do this and there's no, there's no stigma about it, but it was psychologically a blow for the first time in my life. I collected unemployment. Um, and there were so many times where, you know, I was thinking I should probably look for a job or I should probably do this or I should probably do that. But I held on to this book and, and I kept, I kept writing this book. And even though it was foolish, I, you know, cause I was then I thinking, okay, I'm writing a book. This book is going to, is the only lifeline I have right now. Um, but suddenly I wanted to write about transgender people. I wanted to write about donuts. I wanted to write about um, violins because I love violin music. And, and recently I was starting to listen to it more. And I used some of my money to buy a violin because I'm just that silly. Uh, because one shouldn't do that when one doesn't have a decent job but I found one on eBay and it play, and it played pretty well and you know guess where that showed up in the book and um I wanted to talk about queer people and I also wanted to talk about the stars now all of this really feels like I've just torpedoed any chance I'd ever have at selling a book <laughs> torpedoed any chance I'd ever have at like making it through a writer's workshop unscathed, right? Um, but I wrote the book 
and I wrote it and um, I threw it out there. And the first threshold I passed was I got an agent who really loved this book. And from there, it was still, it wasn't even with Toria Jordan. From this point, I was thinking that I was writing some literary fiction thing, right? When one comes from an MFA program, one thinks one's writing literary fiction all the time, right? Lit fic. And uh, I was going to go that route. But uh, Torbid, science fiction, fantasy, suddenly were into genre. And I asked myself two questions. Is this what I want? And am I legit enough to write genre fiction because I had spent so much time writing poetry and essays? Uh, I, I know that people who write science fiction and fantasy are very, 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 very good at what they do. And um, the, the readership is, uh, is very cognizant and, and, and expectant. And they have demands of these wonderful stories because these readers are very, you know, these writers are all so good. Can I do this? And I just said to myself, what the heck, let's go. And so each one of these situations has kind of been um, something where the better, the, the more logical voices in my head were saying, you know, go find a decent job, go, go, or just, just find something to survive, write a book of essays, write some poetry. And all of these are really good things that I could have been doing, but somehow I'm in this really odd place right now. And I've got um, both editors and beyond them readers who I'm so blown away by the generosity and the fact that there's generosity and the fact that everything that I thought I was doing to sabotage my own career. I'm going to write about queer Asians in the San Gabriel Valley and we're going to feed the ducks and then we're going to eat them and we're going to have donuts and there's going to be space aliens. All of, and we're going to talk about Bartok, okay? I mean, I'm not even speaking about, when I'm talking about music, I'm not even going for the classical musicians. I'm not even doing pretty, pretty like Mozart. I'm going Bartok. Who the hell does that? And I'm thinking I'm in deep, 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 deep doo-doo. But I wasn't. It was a threshold. And it seemed scary. But now that I'm here, in hindsight, it all came together. Why were those the things that were calling to you? Bartok and ducks and donuts and queer people and, uh, you know. <laughs> well, because I never felt, Jordan, I never felt that I belonged anywhere. Um, I love to feed the ducks because growing up I was bullied. and ducks and feeding the ducks was common for me. Uh, fish ponds were, were both, you know, you know, look, watching fish. This is like when uh, after, after you're beaten, looking at things floating around the water is really kind of nice. And um, also, I remember going through the MFA program over at Cornell and bless their souls, but um, they're, at the time, I was a bit of an oddity and I, you know, I could write about my breakfast and people would think I was writing about the Vietnam War because they were trying to read things, but they didn't understand that having rice for breakfast was normal for me and I wasn't making a political statement. 
So I've been always feeling that I've had to put on my normal clothes and my normal face and my, my normal cultural, you know, you know, set of cultural markers to work in society. And after a while, one just gets tired of that. And I think what ended up happening was thinking, well, I'm not really succeeding very much at becoming in, you know, sort of an ersatz white person. I'm not pulling off straight very well. I'm doing none of these things and I'm probably not going to succeed because the last time I checked, I'm not doing very well. Well, if I'm not going to do very well, I mean, that's uh, people, what I'm saying is people did love my books and here I was in small presses. So I don't want to disparage that, but I wasn't getting to the, I wasn't getting more readers and, and, and I was thinking, okay, well then. If I am going to write, you know, if if that didn't work for my next try, I would at least like to look at myself in the mirror and say, girl, you did your best. You weren't holding back. And if they don't like that part of me, if they don't like the story I'm about to tell, with all the seeming contradictions that you, Rika, know are not contradictions or just different facets of who you are. They can't get that. Well, at least just at least you can say you told the story that you wanted to tell. And so, I guess in a roundabout way, what what I've just been trying to say is, um, I wanted to, if I were to be judged, I wanted to be judged by the story that I wanted to write, not the story that I thought other people wanted me to write. That that thing you're describing of deciding. So I'm spending so long trying to sort of be on the page or in life what other people think you should be as opposed mm-hmm. to what you've really got going on inside you and then deciding to stop that <laughs> and to just accept the consequences of of being being you mm-hmm. um is such a such a big and bold and beautiful but often frightening Thing to do. How were you scared writing this book? I was terrified. I was terrified. And writing this book, it, uh, I didn't know where, you know, I didn't know if the story was going to work. It's kind of like looking, taking a risk in one's own life and, and not knowing if it's going to work. And a lot of times the terror actually drove me to craft and to when um, Tor suggested that, uh, you know, that I find like a, that they, I use a sensitivity reader. Yeah. You know, um, sure, part of me was thinking, I'm a person of color. Do I need a sensitivity reader? But quickly, another voice said, you know what? Anything you can do to improve your arts, odds great. You know, talking to my editor, um, really working. And not just, and that doesn't necessarily mean saying yes to everything she says, but to really take it into consideration. So when you push back, there's a real reason you're pushing back. Um, all of this... I think that sometimes terror trumps ego, Jordan, you know, where you, you're, you're too scared to have an ego about things. You just realize you just want to do your best, um, you know, and, and I think that that is something that 
we go through constantly. I can be brave as heck today. Tomorrow, I may chicken out. Um, it's just like, you know, coming out. You come out every day when everybody sees you for the first time and you have to explain yourself. It's not this one grand thing. And I think we have these, we have micro, we deal with just as we deal with microaggressions or we have our little victories every day. I'd like to think that we have our little thresholds every day. And I think what that lets us do is it lets us take away the gravity of each one. So you chickened out on yourself today or you chickened out on yourself at 1230 today. You know, 2.30, you're going to have another chance. You'll do better. Go get them. Oh, I love that. What was your threshold today? Um, my threshold today was writing. Um, what has been happening is I have been trying to figure out how to balance writing the new book with promoting Light from Uncommon Stars. And I've been trying to think, well, once I get through with the promotion, I can catch up with the writing. But this was really kind of not working for me. And I had a nice talk with another writer. Uh, her name is Jen Lyons. And Jen Lyons has written, you know, all of these books, Ruin of Kings, Name of All Things, Mem you know, Memory of Souls. She, she writes tomes. And so I asked, how do you, how do you do it? How do you, how do you separate the book promotion from the, uh, uh, from the writing of the new book? And she said, you don't separate them. You just do it. It's a job. Go. And I thought, you know, you're, you're making total sense, Jen. And it, it made, and so for the past week, I've just been writing. And today I didn't really feel like writing. I, I woke up a little bit late and I struggled to get my coffee, but I put, but, you know, and it would be easy for me to slip into my old ways and say, I'm going to wait till after the, the interview with Thresholds, you know, we will talk about Thresholds and then I'll go work on my book. But I didn't. I stayed to my schedule and I'm very, very proud of it. Hmm. That is a huge thing to be proud of. Thank you. <laughs> uh, I think that, you know, there's no such thing as a little victory. It's all good. Oh, I, I'm that, for some reason that that like makes me turn to think about Katrina, about mm. your protagonist in Light from Uncommon Stars, um, because she is somebody for whom every every little victory, every little thing that doesn't go terribly, feels like a a big deal and even a little bit frightening at the beginning. Um, she's she's often feeling like something someone's going to discover uh discover who she is or that she's trans and that things are going to go terribly wrong and every time sort of there's a moment of acceptance or a moment where things don't kind of implode and she's not met with with violence or with rejection is like this this big um this big moment for mm -hmm. her um and i was wondering how you how you thought about bringing her to life on the page and what felt important to you about kind of the beats of her journey? The thing about Katrina is I wanted Katrina to, Katrina in a lot of ways is like the child I've never had. If, you know, I think that out of all the characters in the book, 
I feel most maternal towards Katrina in a way to go back and almost like going back and healing myself. I, I have climbed out of windows. I have been beaten. I, I know what that feels like. Um, most of what Katrina has gone through um, was not made up. Uh, in fact, in some situations, it was toned down because you might notice, uh, or I don't know, I've noticed in in reading what people have said about my book, and I'm so grateful for everybody who even picks up the book, let alone shares their opinion about it. I've noticed that the queer trans people, the ones who are closest to my part of the social demographic, are always talking about how gentle the book is. And then sometimes people who might not be familiar with trans and queer people of color go through are going, oh, my God, it's so horrible. Um, what I was really trying to do with Katrina was to indicate trauma and to indicate the journey, but not to report the journey, not to, not to give you a newsreel. Um, because it wasn't that kind of a book. That being said, I also didn't want with Katrina to have an unrealistic story arc. And I know what's realistic about being picked up by an amazing, you know, violin teacher, but that all aside, I mean, we've got a lot of little princess here, but what I wanted to do at the end was realistically say, what is she ready for? Where has she come from? Where is she going? Katrina's story doesn't end at this book. And so where she is right now, um, she, she doesn't necessarily get, she, yeah, she doesn't, at the end of the book, she doesn't necessarily wrap up neatly. I don't want to spoil the book, but there are some things that happen at the end where she is, where you might kind of notice, ah, uh, some of that's kind of borderline sketch. And, <laughs> and that's important. And just as like, for example, Shizuka, a lot of times when, when she leaves, that's kind of, did, did she really get off scot-free after sacrificing six, you know? And it's like, the answer is no, because the story is not finished yet. Whether the story continues in another book or whether it continues in your mind, I want these characters to to be to continue to evolve and to grow. Uh, Katrina, for example, uh, at the end of her story, I'm not going to give her, uh, you know, a happily ever after and a and true love and a relationship and a healthy life. She she's not there yet. She's not there yet. The she still needs to find that out for herself. She doesn't need the author to give it to her. She's off to find it on her own. So that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to write with Katrina a very accurate character, you know, emotionally accurate, hitting all the right notes, but not so precise that it would divide my readership. And to realistically show, you know, at the end of the day, life doesn't work out, but it's better. And you're off to, I guess, in keeping with this podcast, you're off to your next threshold. That makes so much sense that you felt like you didn't want to give her every, you know, every part of a happy ending, but rather just a new, a new part of her journey to go on. <laughs> what, what did feel important to you that she have at the end of this book that she doesn't have at the beginning? Security. Security, mm. safety, 
She has food. She has a roof over her head. She has a job. She has somebody who's going to take care of her. She has friends. All the things that I wish I had had when I was growing up. There's no guarantee of her future. And there are still some things to work out. And she's still going to make a lot of mistakes. But thank God she's not in that house anymore. I thought it was such a beautiful choice that her security... It's amazing that that's the word. Of course, that's exactly what it is, though I wouldn't have chosen that word necessarily. (laughs) But it's amazing that her security comes from like a very deep relationship with her art form, you know, be learning to sort of take seriously her artistry and deepen her relationship with her violin and her relationship with music is kind of the is is kind of her ticket, which isn't to say it automatically happens, but um, but it, it, that is the relationship that sort of permits everything else. And I was curious about your choice to make that, like the artist's relationship with their art as the thing that can change their life, the center of this book. Hmm. Well, the thing is, first off, you know, it is a conceit. Um, and it's something I think that every writer, I think like me, who has come from maybe a marginalized background, who is queer, and who uses art to relate to her world, I think all of us wonder where our life would be would had we not been able to write, had we not been given some measure of artistic gift. And so in, in writing Katrina, there's always this feeling of not just Well, unreality, but also this need to pass on the spoils of your talent, which is why when Katrina is playing, Katrina is very aware of being able to play uh, music that might be in the hearts of others, but they don't have the capacity to unlock. I mean... It takes a lot of chutzpah to jump out your window with a violin and take the violin. There, there's confidence there. And, you know, um, so even before she meets Shizuka, there's confidence there. And, and that eventually works up. And, and she's continually pushing her art. In fact, I think that if you asked, asked her if she defined who she was, she'd say violinist before trans person. However... When she's playing in her play, and even in Shizuka's play, there's always this generosity that you can do this too, that I'm speaking for you too. And the the paradox, of course, is that not everybody can play like Katrina. Not everybody has that talent, and that's the tragedy. But in that time that she's playing, perhaps the audience can experience what it what it feels like. And all of this kind of mirrors how I feel when people read my work. Even before Light from Uncommon Stars, when I was writing essays and doing performance art and touring the country, uh, doing that, you know, and sort of queer barnstorming, um, occasionally I'd have somebody say, you know, your work said what I could never say. Every once in a great while, somebody would say, your work saved my life. And it's, um, it's humbling. And I want, and 
and kind of terrifying because part of you is also saying, well, yes, that's why I do it. And, and to say that and to have that and to feel that confidence in you is both affirming and horribly terrifying because you wonder if, you know, the heavens are going to smite you. There's a moment in the book where Katrina's transness, her her identity, mm-hmm. that aspect of her identity becomes public. Mm-hmm. And it's seen or it's written in the book as sort of an, an, a nefarious um, gesture because then the as as like as it's written in the book then she will be seen for her identity and not for her art mm-hmm. or she you know it will this this might interfere with um people's ability to just take in her music mm-hmm. um and i was curious whether that mirrored any hesitation you had about wanting to center a trans woman in your, in this book, um, or sort of be writing that, you know, the like duck feeding, violin playing, bar talk kind of book, was there sort of a fear of being overly, the book being overly identified with queerness as opposed to its other qualities? Absolutely. And this is one of those thresholds that we're talking about, um, where, how much queer and transness do I write? And in my essays and in my poetry and things, I I have no problem with that. But this was a book that I was designing for more of a mainstream readership in addition to queer and trans folk. And that risk is there. And, and if you notice um, with what's happening from everything from Everything going on with J.K. Rowling, to um, you know, to what has happened, um, you know, just with David Chappelle. There's a lot of misunderstanding and a lot of cruelty and a lot of venom directed at trans people. Um, however, I have a really, you know, I have a really beautiful friend named Bryn Kelly, who gorgeous, amazing singer. We were in the same play together. We were two femmes trying to share a mirror. You can imagine how that would go. She's dead now because she couldn't, because she could, because life was too much. I have another friend, Alexis Rivera, beautiful beauty queen, we would like hang out and have coffee, talk about how we're going to help the community. She's dead too. And I know a lot of people who are like this. Donna Oskrowski's dead. One of my, uh, one of my friends, Morgan, her goddaughter just died. I had to write a book that honored trans people. There's too much there to honor. You know, just so if I had to take that kind of a risk, 
when, when our good friends, when our family, when our sisters, when our loved ones pass, they give us a duty to do what we can to remember them. And I wasn't going to shirk that duty with this book. Here was my chance to finally reach a readership that so many of us had dreamed about. I'm going to bring them with me and bring all of them with me. I'm so sorry about those losses. Well, it, uh, and they will continue, Jordan, because this world's not a good place sometimes. It can be a really rough place sometimes. But you know what, Jordan? It's also a great place. It's also a place full of compassion and love and, and noodles and ducks and there's always donuts. And that's the, that's the paradox, isn't that? That's why I'm so, although I want to remember them and I, I love them dearly, part of me is so pissed at them because like, why did you give all this up? It's a great day today. If you looked outside, <laughs> you know, it's like, no, you can't because you're not here. You know, so I also didn't want to just write a dirge. You know, there's like a lot of people who ask me, I'm getting this a lot, you know, they ask, how do you write trans characters? And I'm thinking, why? Why are you doing this? Why do you want to write a trans character? And it's usually because they want to tell your story. And the story they want to tell is usually this this kind of trauma porn about, you know, this microaggression or this transphobic thing or that transphobic thing. But you know what? You know, that's not always the most helpful thing for us. We know that life sucks. So when I was writing this, I wanted to write just enough about life to show hey, I'm talking about you, but not so much that it would push you down, you being a trans or queer reader. I wanted to I wanted to show you, yeah, I wanted to make the connection, and then I wanted to take you to Cinnabon. Then we're going to Olive Garden. <laughs> then we're going to have eggplant parmigiana. And, and I'm going to give you the best damn story, and I'm going to make you laugh because, you know what, sister, you need it. You, you'd earned it. You deserve it. And I don't know if I'm good enough, but I'm going to sure as heck try. Yeah, there's so much pleasure in this book and so much sensual pleasure in this book. I was really admiring the way you wrote about food, not just donuts, but definitely don't. You know, there are so many, so many wonderful donuts in this book, but so many just beautiful meals. And I wanted to I wanted to ask you about uh, writing food and the, the role that food plays here? I think that twofold. Um, one, going back to my experience in the MFA program where everything is like I could write about having rice and rice for, for breakfast and suddenly it's a political event. I wanted to just write about food and I wanted to be in charge. When I was writing this, I wanted to um, really talk about food on my own terms. And what I've noticed with a lot of American Western audiences is, you know, they get all puritanical. You know, everybody's talking about food and having to justify it. Well, you know what's healthy? You know, food can taste good too. And maybe we should like examine ourselves if we like, you know, if every pleasure, if we get puritan about every uh, pleasure that we have, um, you know, how can you tell somebody do what feels good when you can't even like have a donut and just say yummy and have to go, well, it's vegan 
or, well, it's got no gluten or, well, it's got this or, well, it's got that. I mean, I'm not saying that these things are not important. What I'm saying is when you know you can eat the food and you know it's good and you know it's all happy there, can you just kind of smile and say, holy shit, this is so good. And that's what I wanted to give. I've been talking in a lot of interviews about the cultural aspect of food, the, you know, that it, it delineates community, that, you know, the San Gabriel Valley is the uh, sort of the holy land of Asian food. And it is. And you should go there. And it's beautiful. And the pho is amazing. And if you go to Kim Kim Noodle House, make sure you get the braised kidney and the, and the chives and the leek. Uh, get the turnip cakes. They're amazing. They're spectacular even. Um, and, you know, Sam Wu Duck. Oh, my God. OK, so I'm going to stop that because my mouth is watering. But what I really wanted to talk about with this is with, with thresholds and, and this interview is the sensual aspect of food. Let yourself, I want to let yourself enjoy the experience of eating uh, a little bit more. I think, I think we'd all, in, I think we'd all um, have a better life. Food's, food's an amazing thing. And, you know, it's not, um, we don't need to justify every action we do. Sometimes it can just be pretty. Sometimes it can just taste good. Sometimes you can just go, oh my gosh, that's amazing and not have to contextualize. I think that, um, you know, even before we are sexual beings, we're beings that, that eat and, and we suckle and we taste and getting into, con getting in contact and, and maintaining contact with your appreciation of what you partake, I think is very, very important to keeping ourselves grounded. That brings me to something else that I was going to ask you a few minutes ago, which is about how you take care of yourself when you're writing something that feels like a big, scary risk to you. How do you, how do you think about protecting your self, your energy, your heart, how, what, however you would want to phrase that um, when you're in one of these places you describe where you're going to do the scary thing that feels like it's right to you? Jordan, I don't know how. Um, as we said earlier, with my most of my other books, what's driven me has either been a need to edify, so like a lot of my essays, or with like come from uncommon stars, desperation, because it was the one book that uh, it was you know the one thing in my life that wasn't going awry. My first novel, Hemele Ahilo was written after I lost two grandparents in the same year, and I wanted to remember them, so I wrote that book. Now, with the new book, I'm in a calmer place. I'm Katrina at the end of the book. I'm, I'm, I'm secure. How do, we, how do we write now? That's why I'm talking to people like Jen Lyons and a few other folks about how to develop really good habits. And I think the key, and I'm suspecting the key is um, treating your own writing and your own life like a garden and understanding that it's going to be there tomorrow and that you can invest in it. And that means that, you know, if you if you start planting tomorrow, um, you know, you can pick up where you left off and we're going to be there every day and no one's going to come run roughshod over it and and it's going to be okay. And, you know, in the, when it's time for harvest, it's going to be okay. And you notice it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. How do we write when it's going to be okay? Um, my, my agent, uh, Meredith, who is amazing, 
told me that, you know, the challenge for you now is to try to stop thinking of your talent and your next book uh, from a point of, of scarcity and insecurity and try to write from a state of security and abundance. That's the challenge right now, Jordan. I, I don't know how, I, but I have got good friends. I have people I can count on and rely on and people I trust and people I love. And I think we'll all figure it out together. Wish me luck, okay? Thresholds is a production of Lit Hub Radio. We're produced by Drew Broussard and Justin Alvarez. Music and editing by Laura Faye Oshwood of Arthur Moon. Our art is by Kirsten Huber. Special thanks to Farrar Strauss and Drew. I'm Jordan Kistner. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at jordan.kistner. We'll see you next week. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.